0: Welcome to the Jungets Games podcast, where in today's episode, you'll be hearing the audio from a recent Impressions vlog. In that video, I discussed my initial plays of Airland and Sea, Masters of Renaissance, Pan Am, and The Grand Trunk Journey. Now, obviously, I'm going through them in alphabetical order, and if you'd like to hear to just specific parts of this podcast, then you can look to the description in order to find timestamps to each specific game. At this point, I do want to mention that the only reason this podcast is being made is because of the direct support coming in through the Patreon campaign for the channel. Now, if you prefer to listen to these vlogs in podcast form versus watching them, then I do hope you would consider supporting the campaign, and you can learn more about this by going to patreon.com slash jongetsgames. The final thing I'd like to ask is that if you have any questions or comments about anything I say here today, that you leave those as comments on the YouTube page for the vlog, and you can find a link to that in the description of this podcast. Alright, let's now start talking about games, and the first one of these is Air, Land, and Sea. Now, this is a two-player only game that takes between 20 and 30 minutes to play, at least from my one experience playing this, and uh, I played this one a few weeks ago. Now, the way this game works is there are three different theaters of war in the middle of the table, which is Air, Land, and Sea, and every single round, you shuffle up an 18-card deck, and you give six cards to each of the two players. Now, when it's your turn, you can play a card face-up into one of the theaters if the card matches the theater, if it's A C card, for instance, you must place it into the C, and you put it onto your side. Now, the idea is, um, at the end of the round, that you have more numbers on your side of the theater than your opponent, and you win the round if you win two out of the three theaters, or essentially if you have a majority of numbers on your side compared to your opponent for two of the theaters. Now, that seems uh, relatively straightforward, and um, the cards have various effects that can happen immediately when they're played, or ongoing effects, um, and you can mix that up a little bit by turning the card face down, and then every card shows a two on the back. Now, you can put that card onto any of the theaters, so it makes you a little bit more flexible, but of course, the card is likely less powerful, but then you can do cool combo-y things, like put a face-down card over here that doesn't match, and then play another card that has an ability to flip this card, so you flip it over, and the fact that it doesn't match is fine, and now you get this powerful card where it maybe couldn't have been earlier, so this game is definitely all about trying to work together combos with the actions that you have on your cards. Now, that's all well and good, and you just, you know, play to the end of the round and see who uh, has uh, one two out of the three theaters but the real catch for this game is the fact that on your turn the third option for your action is you can just quit <laughs> you uh, you essentially uh, withdraw for the round and you tell your opponent that they win now that's a little bit strange but the earlier in the round that you withdraw the less points your opponent will get now you keep playing until one player gets 12 points and if you are playing through a round and you play every single card and your opponent plays every single card then the winner can get, I believe, up to six victory points, which is half of what you need to win the game. However, if you play two or three cards and you can tell that your opponent is just a lot stronger, um, the cards they randomly took from the deck maybe are just better for this current situation or better to counteract what you have, you could just withdraw. And now maybe they only get two or three victory points, which is obviously a lot less than six. So this game is all about uh, trying to perceive how well your opponent is doing, because obviously, if you think they're going to trounce you in that round, you want to get out as soon as possible. Now, there is an interesting flip side to this because if you have a really strong hand and you can tell it's a really strong hand, well, you don't want your opponent to know it's really strong until it's too late. You want to try and drag the round on. So, there is a strange counterplay thing where you might be trying to play out your strong hand in a way that kind of holds back big moments for later on in the round. Maybe uh, do some setup cards to make it seem like you're pretty good, and then on your fifth card, drop a huge card for the moment, and your sixth card, you know, another big one, and potentially win the game. So you're trying to not spook your opponent into withdrawing. You want to make them feel like they're still in it, but of course, that could backfire because maybe you have misjudged how strong they are, and suddenly they actually win on that last card played, and now you give them six points, and then, you know, potentially the game is over. Uh, So that's essentially how the game works in a nutshell, and I was really impressed. Um, The rules are very simple to teach overall. I just Taught most of the game to you right there, uh, and it's true that um, most of the uh, the cards that you play with have special abilities. Some of them are a little bit more complicated than others. But in the uh, tabletop simulator mod I was playing, there was a really nice big blown up cheat sheet, so you could easily see what those were. Now I only played this once with a friend who had not played it before either, and we went into it blind. We did not look at any of the cards, so the first couple of rounds were especially uh, impactful and I guess exciting because um, you know my opponent would play a card and be like, oh, "You could do that." <laughs> You know, like Because I hadn't seen that card yet. And once we went through about three rounds or so, I think we had seen essentially all of the actions. And uh, there's some pretty cool stuff in there. Like I said, there's ways to uh, like play cards face down and then flip them up to have surprise moments. You can also play cards to flip over your opponent's strong cards to their weak side with the two on the back to negate some of the powerful effects that they are doing. And you're trying to work all of this together while, again, trying to squeeze as many points as you can out of the round or at least lose as few points as possible. So, um, I'm honestly a little bit surprised I haven't played this one again. I think it's largely because I haven't been playing that many two-player games lately. Um, I, I, like I said, just played this one once, and then immediately after that, we played Mandala, which is also a wonderful two-player-only game, which I talked about a month or two ago. Uh, So, I think this one is very likely to get played again. Um, At this point, I am definitely interested in picking up a copy. I'm not sure if I will for sure, um, but uh, just because I don't play that many two-player games, but it does seem like it's a very small box, and and the ideas are fascinating. I, I really enjoyed trying to get into my opponent's head. It almost had this bluffing uh, style going, a uh, thing to the game where you're trying to see are they trying to project strength when they're actually weak? Are they trying to project weakness when they're actually strong? Um, are they really not sure? And are you really not sure? Which is probably actually what's going on. Um, now, I think uh, I ended up winning that game and I. I don't think any of the rounds actually went all the way to the end with checking to see if somebody won two out of the three. Uh, because on that last card play, that it definitely seems like, you know, you could play that last card out and then, you know, give even more points to your opponent if it gets to that point. So if you have one card left in your hand and you're obviously going to lose even if you play it, well, you're just going to withdraw. So uh, it's it's a little bit strange. There's a framework for winning two out of the three, but it seems like the vast majority of the rounds will be uh, finished by a player withdrawing, which is just a neat idea. I just don't recall any other games where quitting is a totally valid strategy. And um, I watched a little um, a video of the designer teaching the game, and they said that the uh, kind of tagline for the game is, uh, losing the battle to win the war is, I think, what they said anyway. Maybe I'm just paraphrasing, but either way, I was very impressed by Airland and Sea, and I'm hoping to play it more in the future. Well, let's move on to the next game, and that is Masters of Renaissance, which is the Lorenzo Il Magnifico card game. Now, I find that kind of funny, considering the original game is also a card game in a lot of ways. There are a lot of cards that you are using as kind of the engine of the game. Now, the original game is a meaty Euro game that takes, you know, up to two hours to play or so, and it is a work replacement game with really tense decisions and lots of brutal denial activity. Uh, in that game, you are acquiring resources to take cards to build engines, but then you have to go to work replacement spots in order to activate your engine. So you might spend all of your energy building an awesome engine and then not be able to run it well because people keep clogging up the uh, activating spot. Uh, so it's it's a tough game overall, and we actually like it quite a bit. We've played it many times. Now, that is the reason I was quite interested in trying out Masters of Renaissance because this seemed like it was a streamlined version of Lorenzo il Magnifico that uh, would hypothetically play in an hour. At least that was what my expectation was now. uh, The way this game works is on your turn, you do one action out of three options. The first option is really neat. So, from a toy factor tactile perspective, in the middle of the table, there is a tray, and it has three columns and four rows. Now, there is a marble, a different colored marble in each one of those 12 spots, and then there is a 13th marble, and when you do a resource action, you choose a row or a column, which could be three or four marbles long, and you take all of the associated uh, resources that match up with those marbles. So, if there is a purple marble, you take an assistant. If there is a blue marble, you take a shield, etc. After you decide on one of those rows and columns, you take the 13th marble and you shove it into that row or column, which puts that new marble in and kicks another marble out. So that means every time you take resources, you are modifying the different um, arrays of resource options that other players can take from the middle. Now, uh, many, of several I guess, of the marbles are white, which don't actually give you anything, unless later on in the game you play a card that means suddenly you get stuff from white marbles. So, that could be your whole turn. You just take one action. So, you just take the resources, shove the marble in, and then your turn is over. The next thing that you can do on your turn is you can buy the development cards in the middle of the table. Now, they come in a couple different tiers, which are harder to build, but more impactful, and a variety of different colors. And you simply have to spend the resources that you need in order to match up with that card. So you take that card and you put it down onto your player board and that's that. Uh, that's your turn. You just spend resources to get a card. The third thing that you can do on your turn is you can run your engine. And I did mention in the uh, original game of Lorento il Magnifico, there was competition for the engine running spot, but in Masters of Renaissance, there isn't. You just take your turn and you run all of the different effects that are on the cards that you've already purchased in front of you. Now, in general, I think as a global rule in this game, that just means spending resources to get other resources. And this is where a really cool idea comes into play. Now, i I skipped over this earlier, but whenever you take resources from that marble tray, you put them into depots. Now, these are uh, little storage spots that can take one, two, or three exactly of the same resource. So if you take multiple assistants, they'll have to go into the two or three one because you took a couple of them and you cannot put the same resource in multiple of these three different depots. Now, if you break that rule, if you take more assistants than you can store or more resource types than you can store, then you have to discard the excess and then all of your opponents will gain one spot on a faith track. Now, you have this faith track on on your your particular board and you just get points for this faith track. The farther up you are at the end of the game, the more points you get and there's a neat little mechanism also where if you're the first person to a certain threshold on that track, then you immediately cause a scoring for that track and everyone who is at least close to you on that track will get points including you but anybody who is lagging behind will not get those points. So, you are obviously, when you're taking your resources, trying to math it out well so that you're not giving your opponents free prayer track bumps. Now, when you run your engine, You are spending stuff in order to make stuff, but the stuff that you make, does not go into those depots. Instead, it goes into a big treasure chest that can hold everything that your heart could ever desire. So this is really important because it lets you get around the restrictions of storage in those depots. So this game is really all about getting the right resources to buy the right cards, to then run the cards, to get the resources that you need to buy more cards. That's the flow of the game. Now, we played a four-player game of this, and I had very high expectations going in, and the game ended up taking... Ah, probably more like 90 minutes, maybe a little bit longer than that. And it was a first-time play for us, and we were playing it on Tabletop Simulator. Although, I'll admit, the uh, mod on Tabletop Simulator is really slick. Uh, it automates a lot of things, like the resource gathering. So, um, I I really liked the different pieces of this game mechanically. Like, I, I, if you've been watching my channel for a long time, you'll probably know that I uh, am I'm very into... Cool mechanics. So that marble grid seemed super neat, and I like it in theory. Uh, and the idea of uh, running your engine and like gaining new resources that you can put into a permanent storage, um, I like a lot. In in fact, more than in theory. And I think I'm beating around the bush to say that I was actually pretty disappointed with this one play of the game. And the big reason for that is because. I felt like there was a lot of randomness and uh, more than I wanted, and also, maybe this is just a me thing and a first-time play thing, but I felt like I was at the butt end of the randomness a lot in this game. I got very frustrated. Um, There were several times where I was setting myself up to buy a certain card, and then suddenly, an opponent was able to run their engine in a way I didn't realize to then have the resources to buy that card right before me, so they would buy that card, and suddenly my resources don't match up with any of the cards because when you buy a card, you then reveal another one underneath it. There's a bunch of stacks of four cards and you shuffle them up at the start of the game. So that means you need to be keeping a keen eye on all of the resource options that your opponents have, as well as their production options to see if they can produce into the resources that they need in order to get the right set of resources to buy that card before you. Now, That means you are heavily incentivized, obviously, to pay attention to them and try to do things that you don't think your opponents are doing. And I tried to do that, but there were two key moments in this game where an opponent was able to, um, you know, run a production that I wasn't expecting to suddenly have the resources to buy a card that I'd have been planning several turns around um, grabbing. And then I got unlucky because the card underneath it did not match up with the resources that I had. And remember, those depots are very restricting. So if you take resources that don't fit in there, and it's very easy to do that, you give prayer points to all of your opponents. So that happened a couple of times, and that meant I had to kind of like pull the E-brake on my plans, and then have a couple of really awkward reset turns where I'd do a very um, crappy production run to try and get a couple of the new assistants or the new uh, resources into my permanent storage uh, in order to try and re-gear around to taking that new card that was revealed or a different one. And, um, (laughs) And I was always terrified that I would then do that and then three turns later have another opponent just swoop in and grab that away from me. So I felt like I got on the back foot probably because I made poor decisions, but then I felt like I was on the back foot for much of the game. And on top of that, the randomness of these cards can have a huge impact on the play. Um, There are these um, special cards that you draft at the beginning of the game that will give you extra powerful type of options if based off of the different colors of cards that you take, and um, some of them, like I said, will let you uh, get resources for the white marbles. Now, one of my opponents um, at the start of the game happened to take a card that let them take coins for the marbles, and um, one of the cards that was revealed um, later on in the game said that you could... Um, uh, get a whole bunch of faith points by spending a bunch of coins, so they were able to get a ton of coins based off of some of the engine they had as well as obviously the white marbles and They picked up this card by spending just a ton of coins that was the cost and then they just smashed that button many times and they were able to uh, end the game and they were able to win the game uh, vice versa. I had a card that gave me assistance for the marbles instead of coins, but the card that let you spend a bunch of assistance to get a bunch of prayer or a bunch of other stuff was at the bottom of the stack so that Never showed up. And, it, you know, there was one that wanted like a medium amount of assistance and a medium amount of something else, which is can be a little bit harder to put together based off of the cards that you have. Um, so, I guess, long story short, I found the game very frustrating and I really wanted to like this game. I wanted to love it, honestly, because um, I think that marble uh, uh, thing is super cool, although it is pretty tactical. Like, there were many opportunities or many situations where you had the perfect plan and then somebody took resources, which shoved a marble out, which kind of killed your plan suddenly you're like, okay, hold on a second. I need to rethink because if you don't pay attention enough, you will take resources that you can't store, which then gives your opponents faith points, which will give them victory points. Uh, There was a moment um, about three quarters of the way through the game where I sat there staring at that marble grid when I was trying to do a a opponent had just taken a card and I was trying to figure out a new plan because everything had just been uh, thrown up in the air for me. And I, I was staring at that grid for like three minutes, four minutes, and I finally said, "You know what? Okay, I'm just going to do this." I took the resources. I realized, "Oh, I screwed up. Now I'm going to be discarding two things, which gives all my opponents two prayer." And I was so frustrated. I was just like, "Let's just keep going." <laughs> it's like I'm losing already. It's just let's just keep going. You guys all get two prayer points, and uh, this is awful. <laughs> I, d- I definitely did not enjoy that moment. Uh, when the dust settled, I had half the victory points of the player who won, um, and I was uh, very far behind everybody else. It was three people kind of close to each other, and then I was very far back. And that was a bummer. I I definitely feel like um, there were moments throughout the game where I I was thinking, maybe I'm not doing so bad. Maybe it just seems like I'm doing bad because I'm focusing on doing other things, and maybe it'll all turn out well. And it, it really didn't. So, at this point, I feel like I am not sure if I'm going to play the game again. That frustration was definitely a predominant feeling as I was playing through the game, and then I would be constantly trying to convince myself that I was having fun, even though I wasn't really having fun. So uh, who knows? Maybe at some point I'll play it again in the future. I think it would certainly play better with less people, so there is one, with like three people instead of four, or maybe even two people, so there's one or two less people to potentially snipe the card that you're trying to plan ahead for out from you, and I think that would make it probably a much more streamlined game. But um, one thing to state is, is that the player who won, who put together a really cool thing, they said at the end of the game that they kind of felt like they lucked into getting good cards that would work well for them. They, they said they didn't super feel like they deserve the win, and that's definitely uh, an interesting point to uh, keep in mind. So um, I think that is going to wrap up my thoughts on Masters of Renaissance. Uh, maybe it'll get it played again, but I, I think it's unlikely. Next up, we have game number three, which is Pan Am. Now, this is a worker placement style game with some pretty funky stuff going on, and I was able to play this one a couple of days ago with four players, uh, once again, on Tabletop Simulator. Now, the way this game works is each player is in charge of a small airline company, and you are trying to establish routes out on the world. Now, I do want to start this off by saying the map of the world in the middle of the board is awesome. I just love the way it looks. It's got this really cool projection where the North Pole is kind of in the center, so the world is kind of splayed out in a very strange way. So that means, um, like, America and Russia are very close to the middle, and then um, South America is way over to the side. Uh, Now, there are a bunch of different links between the cities on this map, and the way the game works is you are going to be sending out engineers, which are effectively workers, in order to do a wide variety of actions. Um, You could go to a spot in order to build an airport. You could go onto another spot in order to get a card, which gives you permission to fly out of a specific city. You could also construct new airplanes, which go into your fleet, and you can also put routes out onto the board. So you have to decide what you want your engineer to work on with each of your three engineers, which is the amount you have in a four-player game. I do believe you have more engineers when there are less players in the game. Now, At most of these worker placement spots, there are increasing costs for that spot. Uh, So, there is a bidding mechanism along with the worker placement. So, that means if I want to build a level three plane, for instance, I could spend the minimum, which... I think was uh, $4, but I could spend the uh, maximum if I wanted to instead, which was, I believe, 10 or so. dollars. Or I could go right in the middle with 6 or $8 and then hope that none of my opponents are interested in spending more money than I am planning on spending in order to bump my engineer out. So you only spend the money once the round is over. So it has a worker placement, but also bidding style thing going on. And again, just about all of the action spaces have that, including the cards that give you access to cities and also the spot that lets you build airports. Now, um, the rubber meets the air, I guess, (laughs) in this game with the routes section, which you don't have to bid on, and that lets you take planes from your fleet and put them down onto the board. Now, you put a plane down onto a line between two cities, and in order to do that, you have to have permission to fly out of both cities. Now, you get permission if you have an airport in one of the two cities or if you have a card in front of you that matches that city. Uh, For instance, if you have a Seattle card, that means you can fly into and out of Seattle, but um, that Seattle card is also a blue card. And so instead, you can discard the Seattle card, permanently losing it in order to go into any other blue city. Now, if you went into Seattle, you keep the card. So there is an interesting tension there where you're trying to get cards and keep them and use them in order to fly out of that city as many times as you can. But then you might not be able to get the other cards that match up out of that city. So at some point you decide to permanently lose that card to essentially have a wild of that color in order to go somewhere else. Um, So that's a neat idea. And every single one of these lines tells you how far they are and that dictates what size of plane you can put onto that. Now, the uh, the length of the route will increase your overall income. At the end of each round, you will get the income that is displayed down on your board, and the object of this game is to, at the end of seven rounds, have the most Pan Am stock. Now, I mentioned that every player is a small airline, but this is, I believe, themed in the 70s or so when Pan Am was a massive airline uh, company. Now, Pan Am is not controlled by any player, but there is a stock price that goes up and down. So you are trying to spend your money in order to bid the right amount to get the actions that you want, but then you also want to have enough money at the end of the round to spend it in order to buy these stocks. And again, the stock's tend to get more expensive as the game goes on. Sometimes they fluctuate down a little bit. Now, that is not the only reason why Pan Am is in this game. In fact, I have essentially been hiding the coolest aspect of this game, which is the fact that Pan Am is a neutral player that is taking over the world effectively while the rest of you are trying to run your little airlines. What that means is, starting in Miami and working out, Pan Am is going to just dominate the air uh, uh, paths, essentially, and you roll a die at the end of the round. Uh, You roll a certain number of times, depending on an event card, in order to see where Pan Am is going to be buying up now. Now, they're not taking over. Well, I guess they're not uh, conquering. They are taking over by buying. So that means if I have a route next to Pan Am and that die rolls and they want to go into that route, they buy me out. So I pull my plane back into my fleet so that I can then deploy it to another route later on in the game. I get to keep that route. uh, I get to keep that plane, but then I get a bunch of money. Pan Am paid me a bunch of money to buy that route away from me. And then I can use that money to buy stocks in Pan Am because that's how you win the game is by having the most stock. So this game is all about trying to get roots down because roots are going to increase your income, but then you also want to position your roots so that you are close to Pan Am, so that Pan Am will buy you out, which will, of course, lower your income, but give you a big influx of cash that you can then spend to buy more planes and also to buy more stock, which is, of course, how you win the game. So, that's really cool uh, from a mechanical perspective. And it's uh, one of the reasons I was uh, quite excited to play the game. I actually didn't uh, teach the game. It was taught to me by a friend who is also quite intrigued by that idea where you are trying to get gobbled up by a massive company because that gives you the funds in order to uh, work your way out. So that means also you're essentially being pushed out throughout the game into the farther extremities of the world, essentially because Pan Am um, starts in Miami and just kind of goes out. Now, You don't have to start over there. In fact, the cards that you have at the start of the game might um, cause you to start in Europe or start in South America or something like that. And Pan Am will get there eventually, which is definitely not a problem. Um, So that's effectively how the game goes. I've definitely glossed over uh, some significant things, but I now want to talk about my impressions of the game and the impressions of everyone that played it. Now, I think we took about two hours, maybe a little bit more than two hours, to learn the game, or to be taught the game anyway, and to fully play it. So it was not terribly long overall, but... I feel like very similar to Masters of Renaissance. I like the ideas in this game more than I actually enjoyed playing it. And a big part of that had to do with uh, randomness. And again, this sounds very similar to Masters of Renaissance, or at least the criticism that I had. Um, There is a event card that is revealed at the start of every single of the seven rounds, and that can have a big impact on how the game plays. Um, That card could say something like everybody gets a couple bucks, or it could say everybody can sell a route to Pan Am. Well, that's awesome. If you have a, you know, level 3 or level 4 route taken over on the board, because that will give you tons of money, but let's say in that moment Pan Am maybe just bought something else or you just weren't able to get a big plane out and you just have like ones or twos. Well, then you're going to get a lot less money than your opponents did from that random flip of the card. Now, the card flip is also going to dictate the price of the Pan Am stock. And it seems like in general, it goes up, but it does sometimes go down. So that means at the end of the round, when you're sitting there looking at your stack of money and you're trying to figure out how many stocks you want to buy, it's a bit random. Like you fit, you figure I should probably buy now because the stock will likely go up. But if you then, you know, spend a bunch of money, buy three stocks, and then the stock goes down, that doesn't feel great. And you had no way to go into that. Like, that's just, I guess, the theme of a fickle stock market, which makes sense from a thematic perspective, but from a gameplay perspective felt a little bit frustrating. Now, the big randomness came into play with that die. I mentioned you roll a die in order to see what Pan Am does, and that die is weighted. Um, It goes on the Asian line a lot more often than it goes to South America, and it goes to South America more often than it goes to Europe. Now, that makes sense because the Europe line is shorter than the South American line, which is shorter than the Asian line, but it means if you end up kind of investing in that area because of the cards that were available to you, you are even more at the whims of the die because the Pan Am just might not go over there and might not buy you out. And that is a big part of the game because if you're not being bought out, then your planes are stuck there on the board. And sure, they are giving you income, which is nice, but if the plane is on the board, you don't have more planes to deploy, so you have to spend actions and money to buy more planes to then deploy onto the board, maybe onto more spots where you hope Pan Am will buy you out, and if Pan Am doesn't buy you out, Pan Am goes a different direction because of the die roll, then next turn, you're once again trying to buy more planes, and you could just kind of find yourself digging a little bit of a hole because the way the die rolled. Um, Now, we did just play this once, and obviously, this is not an uh, authoritative opinion about how it will always play, but That's kind of how we felt the game felt in this game. Uh, On the very last uh, round of the game, if the die had gone differently, I would have bought more stocks than if it hadn't because – Pan Am could have bought me out, which would have given me money to buy those stocks, but they didn't. And and I, I just found that kind of frustrating overall. Um, now, as far as a worker placement game is concerned, it felt pretty solid, although we were all new to the game. So it was really hard to figure out the amount of money we should spend on things. I feel like we overpaid for airports, and I feel like we maybe underpaid for cards. Um, but actually, speaking of cards, that's another piece of randomness because at the start of the game, everybody gets um, – a set of cards that they uh, choose from, I believe. It's, it's been a couple days since I played, but you might have a couple cards that let you immediately build routes on the very first round, uh, especially if you can maybe pick up a card from the middle, um, or you might have cards in front of you and cards in the middle of the table that make it essentially impossible for you to build a route in the first round, and that's just luck of the draw. In our game, one player was able to build two routes on the very first round, and I was able to build zero based off of the way the cards were. And it's not like I made decisions to not build routes. I just, my very first turn, I asked them, I was like, can anybody see a way that I can build even one route in the first round? And it did not seem like that was the case. So instead, I just bought some cards to try and strengthen my position for the next round. And, you know, I tried to work around that, but there's just... So many different spots where randomness can creep in, and I think ultimately this game was not designed for me um, because from a thematic perspective, it pulls in a lot of awesome ideas, like um, the uh, Pan Am uh, taking over kind of randomly. That makes sense from a fickle world um, uh, perspective. Uh, The stock market going up and down, that makes sense. Like, I I think this was not made for somebody who's expecting a tight, uh, Euro-style game. It seemed like it was a worker placement game with a lot of thematic ties in to, like, sway your opinion back and forth and have highs and lows and whatnot, and it's not really what I was looking for. So, I'm not actually convinced it's a bad game. I I just feel like after my first play, I'm not really sure if I want to play it again because I feel like I saw the cool bits. I I, I really liked the mechanic of Pan Am uh, moving out. I thought that was super cool having a non-player character essentially buying people out, and it made the board evolve as the game went on as Pan Am took over more and more of the airline industries. And um, from a thematic perspective, I don't know much about Pan Am, but I'm assuming they bought out airline industries, so it probably makes a lot of thematic sense as well. So, There's a lot of cool things going on here. I think for some people, they will really like the game. Uh, For me, there's a little bit more randomness than I I necessarily wanted, and that was definitely the case for a couple of my opponents. Uh, So I think it's possible this one might get played again. I I know that uh, at least one of the players I played with would never play the game again, and it's possible another one wouldn't. So we'll see what happens. I, I think there's a lot of cool ideas here, and I don't really want to fault it too much because of my criticisms, because again, I feel like this, I believe this one is sold in Target. So I feel like this one was not designed for me. I think it was more designed for people who um, would find this to be a like super heavyweight game because they've never played anything with this kind of complexity before, even though from a rules perspective, it is quite streamlined from my perspective as somebody who's been crazy about board games for a decade. So um, yeah, that essentially wraps up my opinion of Pan Am. I, I might play it again in the future. It's cool ideas, but not really for me. Alright, we've reached the fourth and final game I'll be discussing today, and that is The Grand Trunk Journey. Now, this is a game that I actually own a copy of. I pre-ordered this one back in January, and it, of course, arrived once The pandemic had hit, and so it's uh, still sitting in shrink over in my kitchen. Uh, Fortunately, there is a tabletop simulator mod for it that I believe was an official mod, and I was able to play this one a week or two ago with three of my friends, so it was a full four player game. Now, this game has a lot of interesting mechanical ideas kind of crammed together, and uh, I like most of them. For instance, there is multi use cards in this game, there's also a deck building, but it's more of a deck evolving mechanic, which is neat. There is pick up and deliver, which I like, and there is a time track, which I love in games. In general, I just think a time track mechanic is super cool. Now, what I mean by time track is there is a track on the board that shows the amount of time players have spent, and it is your turn when your token is farthest back on that track. Now, That means when you are playing your turns, you are essentially spending time as a commodity, and if you spend a bunch of time, you could go very far up the track, and then it might be quite a while until your opponents catch back up until you are once again the farthest back on that track. Now, what you are doing on each turn is several things. (laughs) You are going to be deciding where your train is going to go because you have a little train uh, token that's out on a map in the middle of the board, and it's always on a city. Now, you can play a card from your hand that says a city name on it, and you then discard the previous card that had the city where your train currently is, and then you move your train to that new city then you have to count the number of uh, the distance that you went between the starting city and the ending city, and that's the amount of time that you spent. Uh, Now, you can do more stuff than that. You can drop stuff off at the new city. You can pick up uh, various other goods later on in your turn, and you can do various actions from the cards in your hand. I did mention there are multi-use cards in this game, and that's because the cards will have a destination at the top, and if you use it to go to that destination, you don't get any of the actions on the bottom, or you could play it into your discard pile in order to do the action on the bottom, which means you cannot go to that city. Now, there are also cards that let you add um, uh, essentially wagons to the back of your train. I forget the specific name for it. And each one of these lets you store one good. Now, at the start of the game, your train can only hold one of these extra cards. So, from a pick-up-and-deliver perspective, you are just picking up one thing, and then next turn, hoping to move somewhere and deliver it, and then hopefully maybe pick something else up. Now, these uh, carts can only take certain types of resources, so that is also part of the multi-use game, because if you arrive in a city that makes resources that does not match up with your cart, you discard the cart, but then maybe you can play another cart from your hand that does match up, so then take that resource and then trundle onto a new city. Now, this game is all about thresholds, essentially, because you are trying to uh, prove the things you've done. Every time you do deliveries, you put those tokens in front of you, and they stay there throughout the rest of the game, and you can upgrade your train to hold more carts based off of the amount of one resource that you've delivered. You can um, uh, do various other developments. I'm not going to go into the specifics of it um, with the other things, but you essentially save your receipts, and you don't have to spend those things, so you are running at several different goals as you are playing. Now, there uh, is one mechanical thing I do want to mention. A couple more before I talk about my impressions. And uh, the first of these is the way you can enhance your overall experience like the way the game actually uh, evolves <laughs> as you're playing uh, one of those ways is you can expand the overall network on the map at the start of the game there's just a small number of cities that all players can go to and you can't go to any of the other ones but you can play a card with an action on it that will then let you add a new city onto the map and the moment that happens every single player is going to go into a side deck of cards find their card for that city and then put it into their discard pile but the player who unlocked that city puts that card onto the top of their deck instead That means that player will draw that card most likely sooner than their opponents, so they will have first dibs to essentially go to that city for the first time. Now, that has various reasons to be good, which I won't go into, but that means everybody's deck is kind of evolving at the same rate. However... Each person's deck is different than each other's. So when a specific city is unlocked, my version of that card will have one action and my opponent will have that same card with the same city title, but a different action. So you are trying to unlock cities based off of maybe some actions that you feel like you want to do a little bit more based off of your current position. Now, there are also actions that let you take development cards, which give you ongoing benefits or one-shot benefits that can definitely uh, change things up. And I'm obviously not going to go into the specifics of those. Now, the last mechanical thing to talk about before I cover impressions is the fact that on that time track there are special deliveries now these are various shaped tiles that span uh, some time slots and if you have your time token in that area, and then you are able to be in that city, and you have the resources that that delivery needs. You can then make that delivery, which will give you a decent amount of victory points, and then that token will be removed, so the first player to do that will be the only player to do that. So that means you have an extra thing to think about where, if you are vying for one of these, you have to make sure to be in that city at the right time, because again, your token has to be next to that cardboard, while also having the right resources, and that takes a decent bit of planning. So, we played a full four-player uh, four game of this, and I feel like it probably took about two hours, which isn't too crazy considering we were using Tabletop Simulator and it was a first-time play for all of us. Now, in this game, when I taught it, um, it, the teach was relatively straightforward. I'd read the rules uh, prior that day, and it seemed like most players were pretty into it. Like After I finished teaching, they're like, this seems pretty cool. Let's let's see what's going to happen. And so we started playing the game, and there was an interesting arc to the game that I was not expecting. Um, In the first part of the game, it seemed like we were at least me in particular, but definitely other uh, players, were having trouble getting things going. Things were definitely slow. Like our deck was small, our train was kind of puny, you know, it couldn't hold that much stuff. And so it was kind of like scrabbling to get even tiny little things, you know, spend two or even three turns together in order to get that one thing to then upgrade the train to then be able to hold a couple cars. Now that makes sense. It just had a little bit of a slow work into um, the overall engine that you were trying to build. But then, once we got to the later stages of the game, we have these massive trains that could hold tons of different resources, and it seemed like uh, things definitely sped up from a things that you could do or at least trying to achieve uh, goals of yours uh, perspective. Now, that's fine. It, it did feel like maybe I wanted the curve to be a little bit smoother instead of being so slow and then so fast. But the biggest issue that I had with the game, realistically, was the amount of time it took. Uh, it sounds kind of strange to say. Uh, and by time, I don't mean minutes. I mean actual time tokens on the outside of the board. Um, You keep playing this game until one player crosses a threshold, which I believe is 36 time spent. And (laughs) it was a weird thing where once I was at about 25 time in the game, I felt like I had done most of what I wanted to do. Um, There was definitely more picking up and delivering that I could do to get some more victory points, but I had essentially fully upgraded my train and I had several developments. Most of the developments were gone. And that last section of the game, kind of felt like I was just now we're just running the pick up and deliver, pick up and deliver. Now that is uh, possibly because maybe I got something wrong. I mean, that's definitely a possibility, but I did feel like I read the rules very carefully earlier that day when I played it. Um, And it's also possible this is because we played strangely because it was all our first play, but it seemed to me like if the time track had ended at about 28 instead of 36, um, I probably would have enjoyed the game a little bit more and um, there would have been some things left to be done uh, versus kind of having most things being taken. It seemed like the last couple turns was like, how do I squeeze a single point or two out of the rest of the game? Because most of the points have been squeezed out of it at that point. So that was a little bit of a bummer. And that led me into the other um, criticism issue that I had with uh, this play in that I felt like I kind of did everything a lot. And I'm not really sure if there's more that I want to explore with the game. Um, I enjoyed playing the game. I had fun while I was playing it. But again, once I got near the end of the game, I kind of felt like if I sat down to play this game again, I'm not sure how different that experience would be. Um, Sure, if I played a different uh, uh, train company, the cards would be slightly different based off of the different cities. But it's just mixing up the same abilities, which makes sense from a Euro perspective. There's not, um, like, extreme asymmetry going on here. But... I did feel like there wasn't something pulling me back in. Now, I do want to mention that we did not play with the objectives. Uh, The rules say you shouldn't play objectives your first time you play, and so I thought, well, maybe that would add the variability to make me want to play the game again. But then I read the rules for the objectives, and they are essentially one-shot races, like an objective card says first person to do this, or maybe even a couple players um, to do this will get this specific thing. And... I felt like if those objectives were instead different endgame scoring objectives, so like in this game, it's all about coal, or at least coal is a lot better than the next game where steel is a lot better, then that would vary the gameplay from one game to the next. Now, as I said, I've only played this game once, so it seems silly to criticize the variability after a single play, but I, I will say that At this point, I'm not sure how many more times I'm going to play it. I mean, I do own a copy. I bought a copy of the game, and I think it probably would have been a little bit better in person than on Tabletop Simulator with so much stuff going on. So at this point, I'm essentially... I've essentially decided I'm not going to play it on Tabletop Simulator again, even though the mod the mod is fine, but I figure since I own it, I'm going to let it cool in my brain, like, you know, back burner it for a while, uh, and once I can play games with my friends again, I do know some friends who I think would be fascinated by the multi-use cards, the evolving uh, uh, mapscape, the various uh, pick up deliver uh, actions. I think I'll play it again. I'll learn the rules again or I'll at least refresh myself with them and I'll play with them and that will hopefully feel new enough because enough time will have gone by and hopefully it'll be a little bit more streamlined because we'll be playing in person around the actual game. And again, maybe that's just a sunk cost fallacy, but I paid a lot of money for the game. So I feel like I want to play the version of the game that I have. Uh, I'm not sure how actively I would push to play it again if I did not have a copy, but yeah, I, again, that might just be my personal preference. That might be just a weird first play. And again, maybe I messed up a rule. I, I went back and looked through and I didn't see anything in particular that made the, uh, that would change up the end game situation. But, you know, with uh, future plays, maybe that'll change. And uh, if I play this again and I have a totally different opinion of it, then then I'll talk about it again. I promise. So, yeah, I think that is going to wrap up the Grand Chunk journey as well as um, this impressions vlog. Um, I've been playing less games on average, although I've been kind of bursty with some of them. I played Masters of Renaissance and Pan Am on the same night, which is maybe part of the reason I had the same criticism between the two, but I think that was more of a coincidence. And uh, looking forward to the next few weeks, I'm trying to play more new games. I'm trying to keep things fresh. Um, There are a lot of games that I do enjoy on Tabletop Simulator. I like playing over and over again. I've played Mandala many times (laughs) at this point, but um, I'm still looking forward to playing a lot of new ones. Uh, In particular, the Pandoria Merchants, which is a roll and write version of the game. I'm working on a mod for it. uh, So I actually took the print-and-play file and I shoved it into Tabletop Simulator. And I'm hoping to teach that to my friends and try that one out. And I hope I enjoy that one as much as I like the actual board game. But uh, that's just a tangent. I think at this point, I'm going to wrap up this podcast. Thanks for listening.